The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Numeritas, your financial modelling partner. We are trusted modelling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we are more than just modellers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk. Hello, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Forward Thinking CFO Podcast. I'm Denver McCann, Managing Director at Numeritas and one of your hosts for this series. Today, I'm speaking to Daryl Cox, Chief Financial Officer at Venner Solutions. Venner is a leading cloud technology platform in the corporate performance management arena, and is headquartered in Toronto, Canada. Daryl joined Venner in 2014 as CFO at the very early stages of its growth journey and was the first non-founder member of the management team. He has since then overseen the scaling up and rapid growth of this exciting software-as-a-service business. This experience and his earlier adventures in finance and even door-to-door sales have shaped him into the down-to-earth and authentic CFO I'm speaking with today. Daryl's journey and insights provide many topics to explore, including the importance of a robust management operating process across multiple dimensions of a CFO's playbook, how the role of the CFO is one of storytelling, building trust, and motivating and aligning individuals and teams, and knowing the time and place to delve into the numbers. We also talked about the dynamic and impactful role of the CFO in balancing growth, cash, and the timing and frequency and size of fundraising activities in a high-growth environment. Daryl shared with me the importance he places on authenticity as a finance professional and how essential that is in the DNA of today's forward-thinking CFO. We dug deeper into his insights into the dangers of impatience and how no job is a bad job. We ended off discussing the importance of agility and feedback loops, which enable CFOs to keep up with today's uncertain environment. I had a great time recording this conversation with Daryl and personally took away some great gems of insight which I believe our listeners will benefit from. I see Daryl as a CFO who leads with an equal measure of inspiration and storytelling delivered with authenticity and grounded in reality. He comes across as self-aware and able to honestly reflect on both his successes and his failures, learning from both. So with that introduction, please sit back and enjoy today's episode of the Forward Thinking CFO with Daryl Cox. I'd like to welcome Daryl Cox. Hi, Daryl. Thank you for joining us. And it's a pleasure to have you on our Forward Thinking CFO podcast today. To get us started, we'd like to look back at how you've got to being the forward thinking CFO you are today. And, you know, basically just get you to share with us, you know, your journey, the key stepping stones that you feel made a big impact on your career and your development and how that took you to where you are today. Ah, Denver. Yes. Thank you very much for having me here today. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation. So I'm going to try to keep this brief, although I like to reach fairly far back because I think where I am today is really a combination and a culmination of all my experiences to date. And I think, uh, you know, today I'm a CFO at a growth stage software company. And, uh, you know, things are changing all the time. But to be in this role, I need to be 
prepared for change, looking forward, anticipate the change. I also need to be, you know, always alert and but always, always telling stories and always trying to get to the message and help my team, support my team, help guide us to, you know, achieve our overall corporate objectives, the near term, the long term. And I don't think I could be able to do what I'm doing if it hadn't been for a lot of those early formative experiences I had and kind of, you know, the stages of development all the way along. And, uh, you know, to start right at the very beginning, I actually ran my own business when I was a kid for a few years. And from that, when I remember applying for my first job, I wound up in the enterprise practice at uh, Arthur Anderson on the basis that I had run my own business for six years. <laughs> so okay. it just kind of started this chain, right? And uh, from there, I wound up, and it was completely unintentional, but it turned out being like this continuous series of entrepreneurial situations, but in finance, because my first decision was Arthur Anderson, and that just, it just kept on evolving that way. So I then went to telecom and uh, in the finance department, but always in some kind of development capacity. So even when I was at uh, Rogers Communications, I was in their new business group. So I helped launch new products. That was really interesting because there I got the advantage of working on new businesses effectively, but within a larger organization that had structure, processes, expectations, you know, very well-developed finance team. So I was able to, and my role was, and our role, that team's role was to, you know, launch something new and bring it structured, do it within structure, but entrepreneurial, but entrepreneurial in another way. And from there, I wound up in a succession of other, uh, you know, entrepreneurial startup growth opportunities. So other telecoms that were just launching, hardware company that was uh, launching new products at the time and uh, continues to do so, obviously. And that ultimately led me to FreshBooks, which was the first experience I had, which was a standalone, call it, startup growth stage business, whereas before it was always in the confines of these larger organizations. So you know, Virgin Mobile, Virgin had a pattern already established before they came to Canada to build their business as a whole kind of like process, a system to launch mm -hmm. mobile phone companies. So it was brand new in Canada, but it was something they'd done so often before and they brought their A team set it up, right? So I got the benefit to learn from them. So by the time I, I landed at FreshBooks, it was pretty good. I had all this experience on how to launch and grow a business, how to build business processes, how to mature them. I was able to watch in some of those big companies how too much process could really bog things down burden you, throwing like the entire finance organization for like a $10 billion company on a tiny little startup and how that really made things gummy. <laughs> it's like it was hard to make progress. And whereas when you were at some of these other companies or in other areas where things were more entrepreneurial, how you had the liberty to do different things and you could accomplish things faster, you could make, you probably we made mistakes. Everyone made mistakes, but you could pivot more quickly and try something new and, and limit your losses or accelerate faster in the case of when things were, were going well. I yeah. also learned in all of these experiences the importance of data. And uh, back when I started, you know, see, like we didn't even really have laptops. At Arthur Anderson, my first computer was something we called a sewing machine. And it was just this <laughs> giant box, right? And part of my job was literally carrying this thing around for 
the more senior staff because it was just so cumbersome. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> you needed like a big trunk to put this thing in. And uh, fortunately, I didn't last long. Technology was evolving quickly. Eventually, wound up with a laptop before I left there. But there was no such thing as Excel. And even when I was at Virgin, Excel was limited. That's like 65,000 rows or something like that, right? So data was always a problem. And, uh, you know, I learned how to incorporate data and get the story out of data because there was just so much valuable information in there, even for companies have a lot of history, you know, to help improve business decisions. And I, I loved it. I found it really exciting. I still enjoy doing that, that kind of thing. But now in my newer capacities as a leader, my attention has to be on management, on growing the team, on communications, in particular communication. So back then when I would have been working for a long period of time to get the data together and putting together an analysis to get out an analysis. Now I have to coordinate a team where everyone's doing that. So it's interesting how things evolved, but all of those things I did in the past ultimately uh, brought me to where I am today and I feel have, have really equipped me for what I've been able to do at Vena. Sorry for the long answer. <laughs> no, no, that's great. It's important to, to kind of have these kind of areas of, of context and, and it, it, I think will help everyone listening to kind of understand some of the nuances of the topics we're going to discuss going forward, which I'm kind of really looking forward to. So, yeah, I mean, fast forward to today and I guess with all of that experience and, and those kind of lessons learned, we talked about what we should cover today in, in, in a previous discussion. And I think we kind of concluded in, on two key areas that, that are quite close to your heart and important things for you. And so, you know, the first being covering off the theme of motivation and growth, because they're kind of intrinsically linked to some extent. And then the second kind of area, which we'll, we'll kind of look to get to is, is kind of authenticity in both leadership and as human beings in an organization. So without sort of further ado, I guess let's just launch into the first of those two topics. And, you know, there's a massive amount of pressure and many challenges that face the C-suite executives of today in terms of motivating and mobilizing organizations, teams, in order to sort of execute organizational strategy. So I guess from your experience, what tools and tactics do you use to build and maintain that motivation and almost encourage that drive to execute the plan with your team? That is a big subject and uh, there's two parts to it. So there's the part where it's, you know, motivating. This is what's interesting about finance. You have your own team to motivate and, uh, you know, mentor and inspire. And uh, that's similar, but a little bit different than our role for the finance team as a whole, as an organization that's designed to help motivate, align and, uh, you know, the entire organization. We're a support organization but a, a critical one. And the way I'd like to think about it is in context of uh, the management operating process, right? So you've got like this kind of like rolling wheel of a process that starts with, you know, plan. So get a plan where you set your objectives and talk about what you want to accomplish. And you turn that into a, a financial plan at some point, once you've kind of got the English part of it sorted out or Italian or whatever language you're working on, like, what am I trying to do? Like, what is my long-term objective? And, you know, you set that out for many years in the future, and then you bring it down to like bite-sized chunk, what might be, you know, a year or a quarter or a month. Uh, what do you want to do? And then you execute. 
So it's plan, execute. And so the business executes according to this plan and then they measure themselves against it, right? So it's like, so did we do what we said we were going to do? And so if you're accomplishing what you laid out to do in this plan on a monthly, even a weekly basis for many operational metrics, if you are hitting those numbers, your plan in the long term, you're going to get there because you laid out this road plan, right? It's like you're going on a trip, you're going to go to the Caribbean, you've made your way to the airport, you've got on the plane, you've opened your bag of peanuts, you've fastened your seatbelt, right? It's like there's all these steps that you've planned to do. Are you, are you hitting it? So now you're measuring. And so once you've measured, you have to like evaluate it. It's like, so did I do a good job or not, right? And so you're doing this. And if you're on plan, great, but you still have to take a look at things that are coming ahead. Is there some like storm clouds on the horizon or is there no rain at all? Should I change my crop, right? I can, sorry about all the analogies. And then you might decide to change your plan because you're off plan or you can see a reason why you might become off plan. And then you do it again. And this wheel just keeps on rolling. And that's the management operating process. Every team that's trying to accomplish something implicitly, if not explicitly, follows this process. And notice how finance is all over that, right? It's like you are doing the plan with the business so that you can then turn it into numbers so that you can get something to measure against and evaluate your performance. It's like, you know, when you drove to the airport, you probably watched the speedometer. When you're waiting at the gate, you probably looked at your watch. <laughs> There's like all these measurement points to see whether you're on track or not. Did you miss a plane? Oops, detour. So now you're going to have to reevaluate your short-term plan, but maybe you can still get to the Caribbean on a later flight. <laughs> so your long-term objective might remain intact. So this is, I think, how the finance team plays is to make sure or contributes to the, the, the growth and motivation of, of the entire organization is to make sure that process is effective, efficient. And uh, if it is, I think the organization has a much better chance, right? And if you look at the goal setting, that's a key part of motivation. If your goals are too hard to reach and you're going to keep, you know, then team might find themselves unmotivated when they come up to that period end and they're so far away, there's no point in trying. We'll just push whatever we have into the next period and hope to make the objective in that period. <laughs> so it's demotivation. Yeah. Or conversely, if it's so easy that you just get there right away, then you're not doing anything for the back half of that period. That's not motivational either. So your company was probably not going to be optimizing against its potential. So when you're evaluating your performance in that management, management operating process, which is not at or necessarily always at a defined time, it's a continuous cycle. It's a, you might want to change those targets, either make them lower or higher. And the way to inspire people, the way to communicate these objectives has to be open and transparent. And this is where you get into that authenticity factor, right? And it's hard to think, well, how are you going to be authentic and how are you going to be, you know, when all this thing is all about numbers? Well, it's not. It's about the people. It's about communicating with actual people. And this is an area where I think finance often flounders. There's a lot of binary people in finance sometimes. Those are the people that are really, really good with numbers. And they forget that the whole point of this, like our entire objective is to inspire and motivate. And the best way to communicate with people is not by handing them a sheet of numbers. It's about telling them the story. It's about making the story come alive, understanding what motivates them, how to get them 
be to the whole team, a bunch of people with different objectives, maybe and different aspirations to rally behind something and, and move forward in unison to be aligned, right? Which gets back to something I mentioned earlier on in this conversation about one of our main roles is to make sure that the team is aligned so that when you are doing what you need to do, your partner beside you can trust you and, and feels confident knowing that you're going to be doing what they expect you to be doing. And you are confident in them and the person beside them. And, you know, when you get into a very large organization, you can't even see the person at the other end. You need to be confident that they're doing what you expect them to do. And that's what makes the most effective team. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And, and people are so diverse and come from so many different backgrounds and points of view that that whole alignment point really resonates and it, it must be one of the most difficult things to achieve oh certainly is very difficult especially when uh, you've got a difficult budget to make i have plenty of examples of uh my career of trying to f- force a business into shoehorn a business into like a small little shoe you know where everyone wants to spend more than their allotment and uh, how do you get everyone to work together to agree on what they're going to prioritize on and who gets more money and who gets less? Yeah, be, uh, very challenging. Be quite entertaining. Definitely. <laughs> entertaining is the word. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so these topics of motivation and and actually executing a plan kind of neatly morphs and, and kind of moves us on to the, the, the second part of this, which is the growth journey and and how businesses grow and i think with few exceptions most organizations have an you know an underlying growth mindset or starting point because there's no point to exist without actually wanting to grow in some respects i mean how do you see the role of of cfo tackling the growth mindset instilling that making sure it's alive and well within your team and that finance best contribute towards delivering that, that sort of goal? It's going back to that management operating process. So we're there when the plan is formed. And that planning process is so critical. I like to, in every circumstance I've ever been in, look several years out at that ultimate objective, whatever the growth might be. It might be growth on profits, might be growth on top line revenue, growth in so many ways. And it's establishing, you know, right out from the beginning, the outset, like, what is it we want to be when we grow up? Is it? And it, I don't think it's bad. Lots of people will think that, oh, you shouldn't look that far. out. I think it's great to look out like five years at a minimum and say, because it kind of sets the tone for everything. Like, do you want to be a lifestyle business? Do you want to be like a national leader? Do you want to own the market? Do you want to be Google? Right. It's, it's yeah. like there's so many different levels and those will inform how you act tomorrow. Right. And every step along the way. Right. Going back to that travel analogy, if you plan to go somewhere overseas, it's quite a you're going to probably fly or and definitely not drive as it's going to inform what you do and how, how you're going to get there. And it's also important in context of who you hire. It's going to be important on how you organize your team. So. Is that what you're asking about growth? Is, is Yeah, exactly. All too often, people look at growth on a very granular, month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter basis, looking at the numbers. But what you've outlined, I think, resonates much more with that creating a mindset around wanting to grow and, and, and almost visualizing where do we want to get to, what do we want to be, as you say, when we grow up. 
And it's a much more holistic approach, which means that you can know the destination and make plans, recruit people, structure your business such that you can achieve those desired outcomes. So yeah, thank you very much. That leads us nicely on to your journey with Venice Solutions. The business was founded in late 2011, and you joined in May of 2014, so reasonably early in the development stages. At this point, you could argue that it was still in startup mode, albeit that there were probably a couple of clients and you have a product. But when you compare it with the organization as we see it today, you've come a long way. So what I think our listeners might appreciate is some insight into how you as the CFO supported your team and your fellow executives in executing on what would have been grand plans and aspirations at that point to getting to where you are today with a thriving international organization. You're not wrong. Yeah, when I joined, things were pretty small. I was the first uh, non-founder executive and I took a bit of a risk. I'd never been in anything that small. And I remember even when I was first pitched the idea to join, I was like, wow, that's so small. Can they really afford me? Like I have a mortgage, <laughs> a family to pay for, right? And I'm, you know, I wasn't being greedy. Uh, but, you know, what enticed me was I could clearly see in the product and uh, I knew the market well, you know, extremely well, better than even most people, because part of my earlier experience was always this focus on the data and gathering data from across the organization and like linking it all together and trying to get analysis out of, you know, Excel. Like I did everything hands on in Excel and my team worked, teams worked in Excel, but you got to get data like from a phone company. It comes from these massive databases and you had to kind of get it into a spot so that you could then flip it into Excel. You didn't need more computing power than Excel to get a good story and to transform the direction of a business because it really boils down to a few key numbers pretty much all the time. So here I was talking to someone about this company called Vena that had productized that. I mean, it was like a no-brainer for me. It was like, geez, I should join that company because every company in the world needs Vena. It's a huge market opportunity. And the way the product was built was extremely exciting. It really resonated with me because I was effectively what I was you know, trying to do on a non-productized basis, on an absolutely Neolithic, primitive, <laughs> one-time only basis, right? This was the product that I was looking for. So I joined. And uh, because of my experience, basically growing so many other businesses and growing up with them and seeing what worked and didn't work, I had a pretty good roadmap before me from experience on how to get where we needed to go. So first of all was look at our, our plan. Did we have a plan? Look at the financial systems. Were they producing the data they needed? Were we closing on time? And as a SaaS company, you need to, the way SaaS works is you need to basically fund every customer acquisition. You spend like, call it 10 bucks up front, and then the customer pays you back that 10 bucks over time. And that doesn't even include, right? It's like basically software financed. Yeah. And so do we have enough money? Like that was like the number one thing. Like, so if we want to be a big company and we have the potential to be an enormous company, how are we going to get there? Well, you're going to need financing. So our all, so finance was actually a really cool role in this organization because it was so important 
one, you understood the product, you understood the market. Number two, you needed to be constantly raising money if this was going to be growing as fast as it could. What's the right pace? What's the right investors? So right off the top, get the, the SaaS metrics in place, get your numbers together, put a plan, five years, you know, quarterly for the next five quarters, and uh, look at your capital, potential sources of capital, and you have what you need. And if you don't, when are you going to get more? So it was really all about that right from the beginning. And that's a cycle that continues for us because we want we to continue to grow rapidly. We still have tremendous market opportunity in front of us. And fortunately, be, you know, at some point in there, we began to really focus on operational effectiveness, you know, building a platform, a foundation for scale, right? Not just scale, but quickly growing scale. So once we were able to put that in place, you could really see, and that, that didn't happen immediately. We started early and then now we actually have an entire operations team entirely focused on this to continue to drive improvements in the organization. And that is improving still our SaaS metrics. And so it's this constant evolution, this constant push to improve and grow. And from, you know, from a company that started as three guys in a basement to like several hundred employees and lots and lots of customers, <laughs> as soon as you publish this, it'll be out of date. So I'm almost hesitant to give you a number. Yeah, it's, it's, so finance has been absolutely critical in all those steps and um, a main driver in the organization. And if you go back to that management operating process, you know, one more critical feature in SaaS is not just setting your growth milestones and, you know, determining how you get there. It's how much cash you got to get there with, right? And kind of like establishing that right balance. So the two bookends on every plan for us is growth, revenue growth, and cash. So we know we can raise cash. We want to raise cash. You never want to need to raise cash. So you always have to be on this kind of cash flow break-even plan to optimize how much you raise and when and at what price to minimize dilution. So finance becomes absolutely critical in kind of like setting these guardrails to help you achieve the plan. Yeah. And then monitoring all the, you know, the KPIs in between to make sure you're as efficient as possible in, in getting there and getting the story out. It's like, Hey, this one looks off. Why is it off? Well, we found this reason and that reason. And here's your levers for moving it. And maybe did you think about this and think about that? So it's, it's a very, it's an exciting role in finance when you can uh, deliver this kind of value and input into the direction of the business and its ultimate success. So moving on from those kind of growth, I guess you could say, internal challenges, you mentioned fundraising. Then as an organization has had two significant fundraise events, the first in 2016 with Centana Growth Partners, followed by a second larger round in 2019 with JMI Equity and Centana. So this is a normal kind of, I guess you could say, progression in terms of fundraising events, but private equity is quite shrouded in mystery. And I guess it'd be useful if you could share with us some of the, the lessons you've learned, the insights you've gained from having to engage with private equity investors in this journey that you've had. It's been an exciting journey. And uh, there are some very important lessons I learned along the way. I mean, when I first joined, we were quite successful at raising money, but it was, as you do at the very beginning, it's, it's friends and family. It's uh, people who put their faith in you as a founder and your idea, people who know you personally. And we developed quite a long cap table, 
whole pile of people who trusted the founders and, uh, you know, and invested a, a little bit each, some quite a bit, you know, then, then along came the angel investors, some very early funds. So not to forget them, there was uh, class capital, stable view and difference capital came in and gave us the right size checks for then. When I, we look back now, they look like smaller checks, but remember we were so small and this is where one of the, the first things to uh, think about when you're raising money as, as a finance person or, or a founder or otherwise is uh, you can only raise, you know, it, it depends a lot on how much you want to give up of the company and what those other people think the company's worth. So if your company's small and you want to raise a lot of money and, you know, the valuation is lowish, if you raise a lot of, relative to what you want to raise, then you're going to give away a lot of the company. So what is the right balance of dilution? So how much are you giving up? relative to how much money you bring in. Certainly, if you take a big nut, you give yourself some comfort and stability, but you've just given up a lot of the company, <laughs> right? Yeah. Unless you got like some monster valuation, right? And, uh, you know, that can be easier for folks who have a history of building successful businesses or they've got some special connection to the people giving or giving the funds or something like that. But so those early people, they're not as worried. I don't think they, they have no history to go on. So, you know, you can pull up all those historic numbers for the six months or three years you've been in business, <laughs> yeah. but they don't tell much of a story, right? It's more about where you want to go. And when you look at where you want to go, anyone can draw a hockey stick, right? Anyone can draw a plan to get to the moon. Even if you only got a car or an airplane, you're not going to get to the moon. And, you know, it's like, so people discount that it's, it's all about who it is. And it's like the investor is making a gut decision. Do you believe the numbers? Is it possible? Et cetera. But when you get later on and you turn from a early stage or a venture back business or absolute startup, and you know, you've, you've got some history be behind you and some traction and some scale, you can start to attract later stage investors who will rely on your historic numbers. Those historic numbers as they project into the future as kind of like a baseline or a, they establish a trend, right? And you can start to rely on the numbers. The key is you got to present them properly, right? So as a finance guy, you can figure out well ahead of time what kind of story you need to put together and what numbers that your investors are going to be interested in because you're probably not the only company that's ever done this before. <laughs> and the investors probably got a lot of experience, right? So when you pick your investor for that next round or the type of investors you want to aim for, and this is exactly the process we went through was, okay, we're bigger. We want to get to, you know, stage X, Y, Z. And to get there means, you know, a different kind of investor. So no more, you know, we've graduated beyond angel. We're going to go to like beyond the kind of like the early stage funds. We want kind of more like a, well, it's still later early stage fund. There's so many different, you know, gradients of like funds, right? So you pick the right one and you target them, right? And you put together a story, one that would appeal to them, right? And then it's, you know, market share. Like what is your product? The story starts not even with the numbers. It's like, what is your, the product? What is the, it, it, this was interesting. I find too is with finance people, a lot of the time they, they put together a deck and they spring right to the numbers right on the top. And it's all a bunch of reams of numbers, right? It's, well, it's not actually about the numbers <laughs> right away. Yeah. It's still about what is your product? What's the market? What is the problem you're solving? And, you know, why is the way you're solving it different and important? So why would anyone want your product? Like what's the competition? What's the size of the market? 
what is the problem you're trying to solve over, you know, and, and make it concise and easy to digest. And just, it's like, a, it's the pitch deck, right? And then maybe a few numbers at the top, like market size. And if you're really efficient at acquiring business in the space, if your churn is really good, like the key, key metrics you put up the front and then you put the detail at the back, right? And that's where you can put numbers, but uh, it's those critical numbers that help an investor understand where you are in your stage if you're a good and if you could potentially make a good investment for them and then you continue to evolve that so first stage you know investor early stage investor and then maybe like a later growth stage right so i think santana and i don't want to speak for santana but they still had to put some gut into this they did have numbers but it was still pretty early right that was 2016 by the time you roll around to 2019, very early 2019, basically the work was done in 2018 to partner with JMI, I should say, is you know we had even more numbers, even more credibility there. So less of a gut check kind of investment, but still a little bit, right? Because when you look at the market and what's, what's possible and uh, you know what us as a team or anyone our team has accomplished before, you know, there's still got to be a lot of trust in the management. And if we go for another funding round at this point, it'll be a lot more about the numbers. So there's always this kind of like shift in the story, moving from pure gut to less about it to more about the numbers. But there's always this element about what's the product, not to be discounted ever, the problem you're trying to solve, the size of the market, and who's running the team, and how much confidence that investor has in the team. And when you're the finance person putting together the numbers, and helping to put together the story, it's so important to keep in mind what is who you're talking to, who you want to talk to, picking the right people, because um, it's a team thing. It's fit is a big part of it. And when you're telling them the story, make sure that you're telling them the story that they want to hear, that the way they understand it, and so that it makes them feel comfortable and uh, shows them how much potential there is and what the potential risks are and helps them make a good decision. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's really useful. And um, obviously, you've done the private equity thing, and more recently, I think you guys have just arranged some—is it some debt finance that you've done in the last couple of months? How does that feature into the the, the kind of the growth journey? You know, is there a specific? I mean, not to, to go into the finer details, but yeah, you know, in terms of agenda-wise, you know, why that route rather than expanding the the private equity side of things? Yes. So ultimately, you can use debt for several reasons. One is to extend your runway. So there's putting more time between your raises, allowing you to achieve a greater scale or increase your growth trajectory. The one is other one is just as pure buffer. As I said earlier, between raises, you always want to be on a cash flow break even plan. Maybe you're not going to be cash flow break even that year when you immediately close the deal because you're going to be burning a lot, spending that new investment to accelerate your growth or achieve what you want to achieve otherwise. But in two to three years, you're going to want to show a path to cash flow break even so that, you know, people and well, you yourself are able to be confident and know that you can exist and continue to flourish based on the cash and available credit you have. And debt can help extend that or, or, or give you a buffer, right? So to maximize the value of that equity you, you, you raise, debt is like is cheaper than equity in terms of a dilution, uh, but yeah. you have to pay it back. Right. Mm. So we use it as a tool and I've, I've done this in the past too and seen it. I mean, lots of companies use leverage exactly the same way. It's, it's cheaper, 
on an equity basis are cheaper overall, depending if you're measuring from the shareholder's perspective to grow based on some balance between debt and equity. And right now, I mean, there's like a climate of, of economic uncertainty like that we haven't seen in a while. So further reason to want a nice buffer, even though, uh, you know, if you look at our, our balance sheet right now, you say, well, why would you even want that? Yeah. And so, it's, uh, yeah, so lots, lots of reasons to take on debt. It's a very effective tool. But it's, it, it is an amazing, and that, that whole journey around when's the right time to raise money, and as you say, kind of extending that runway so you can almost build the value before you go to market and then not sell yourself short. Because if you haven't quite delivered on that plan and you haven't kind of crystallized the, the value, you can't really price it into that fundraise. And so then your your dilution just, you know, it, 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 it can be kind of almost – 2x, 3x, what it should have been just because of certain milestones not having been quite hit. Or even if you have hit the milestone, you can even achieve a, a higher one just yeah. by waiting a little longer, right? Just a little bit more scale. Some yeah. people really can't stomach it though. It's it's a lot to do with balancing. It's a balancing act, right? Like, So how much risk can you tolerate? Because as soon as you start going into debt, right, and you run out of cash, you are entering into like a little bit of a risk zone there. <laughs> yeah. So this yeah, is definitely. an interesting thing for finance people, right? It's like, so their main mission is to be cautious, right? And to risk mitigate. There's nobody in the company risk mitigating the same way a finance person does, right? But I kind of look at that as a little bit like the plumbing in your house. And if you, it's like, so great. Everyone assumes that works. So if it's not working, then you get into trouble. But the rest of the house, you can add value to the rest of the house by, you know, having nicer kitchen appliances. The plumbing's still behind there, right? Yeah. Still works. But people, what people see is the fancy sink, you know, the melee dishwasher that you can't hear, this kind of stuff, right? It's like, yeah. uh, so for a finance person to get there, to get at the table and those and adding that kind of value, you need to like take a little bit of risk now and again. It's all calculated risk. Right? It's very calculated. I mean, I'm sure things can go wrong, but how can you really add value and push a little harder and get the business to a better space? I think that's where the finance person can really add value. It's getting you that much further, that much better, bigger. Yeah, and I, and I guess if a CEO is hearing his CFO tell him, you know what, let's hold on. We can get some debt. We can close the purse strings, we can do X, Y, and Z to mitigate cash flow, et cetera, to get us over the line. Let's hold off because the the upside is so much more, it's twice as much as what we would get if we went now. And Even if it's not twice, think about it, because every time you do it, it's a compounding. If you get 10% more or 20% more each yeah. time, right? Exactly. And you're going to do it four times or you know, however many times you're going to do it. So that founder or the early investors, they won't get diluted nearly as then you're right. They'll get like half as diluted, right? So it's like, it's important if you specially measure, maybe just not just one round, but the cumulative yeah. effect of all those dilutions can be pretty big. Yeah, that's a, that's a really yeah, powerful kind of message as well. And, and I guess you then pay your weight in gold to those investors, kind of successfully help them navigate that and take a little bit more risk than they were comfortable with. 
That's um, a theoretical weight in gold, I, you know, but it is certainly yeah. more exciting. It does make the job, <laughs> make the job more exciting and fulfilling. Indeed. All right. So let's move on to the next kind of the topic that we, we kind of talked about in terms of authenticity and leadership. And this is one of the areas that I know you're very passionate about and has an important role for you. And you think that authenticity in leading your team and as colleagues is crucial. Can you share with us why this is so important to you and how kind of being human is at the core of your leadership style and how that's helped you succeed both at Vena and in your previous roles? Yeah, this is so important. I think you're right. I'm, I'm passionate about it because I see a lot of finance people, really good finance people. This is probably the area of development that I, that I encounter the most often where an otherwise excellent finance person isn't getting where they need to be or is having challenges because of this. And I look at our, we're influencers. We don't make a lot of the real business decisions. We have veto over a lot of things maybe, but we're not actually the people making the decision, but yet we can influence that decision through so many ways because we are, you know, normally the, the, the organization within the overall organization that has the best command over the numbers and not just the financial numbers, you know, operational data as well. And if you're bringing all these things together to tell an effective story, the best story isn't going to be worth anything if it doesn't get out, if people don't hear it. They might listen to it, but they don't hear it. And if you don't have kind of like a, a, a respect or a platform to deliver it so that people can hear it, it's, it's, it's going to be less valuable. It might be so important to that organization, like the you know the actual meaning, the key, the reason for life, but yet it won't get heard unless you're able to communicate it effectively. And I look at, you know, over my career, I've had the chance to work for some really awesome CFOs and CEOs, salespeople, and all kinds of different people. And the one thing in particular that seems to define success is the ability to communicate, even if you come up with the best analysis. If it just sits there or goes straight into the like circular filing cabinet, it's not going to have the impact that it should have had. It's tragic. To get that information out, it's not just about sending a report. It's not just about flipping, you know, like an eye chart onto a PowerPoint press, you know, onto a overhead or a Zoom call or anything like that. The delivery and, you know, if you set the table properly for the reception of a, of, of a proper delivery, so where people will be listening and attentive, then it'll be so much more effective. And if I go back into my career and I think of the most successful people that I've been really influenced by in all the places I've been. It's the people who are most effective in their communication style. And those are the authentic people. The most successful, it's like the most powerful combination in a finance person. And I've seen this only a few times is someone who's good in the numbers, really good, but not the best, yeah. but also really good at communicating. And that style is always, it's always, and it's authentic listening first. I understand you. And when I know what motivates you, I will be able to communicate what I need to in the most effective way, it's in a way that you don't even feel it coming. You're yeah. just, you're yeah. just like, I've, I've, wow, I've had those sense, right? Yeah. And it doesn't even need to be in a report. In fact, it's better that if the message comes in several different ways and the report is just kind of like the last thing, it's about the story, how it's put together, what supports it, and then understanding who you're giving it to, the delivery of it, and just being, like you said earlier, human. It's like, so that people, you know, are comfortable 
and expect what's coming and want to hear it. It's uh, so important. I've experienced similar things where I've seen both the best and the worst of, of, of that kind of almost attitude and management style, you know, on the, on the best I've seen, you know, people I've worked for who've convinced me and other team members to climb mountains when we thought we couldn't get up the hill just because of the way in which they engaged on a human level and inspired you or gave you that little bit of encouragement at the right point in time when you were feeling slightly like this is just never going to end to get you back on track. And yeah, it takes a degree of that authenticity and believable authenticity. It can't be contrived or, or kind of put on. It has to have a degree of reality to it. So, you know, I, I, I've seen that many times and those people always seem to be the ones who succeed, the ones who can deliver that authentic message. Hundred percent, hundred percent. It's very hard in finance. I find just because of the type of people that usually are analytical and uh, best suited to you know dig around in numbers and build models and you know the technical, highly technical people. That's not always there. Uh, so they have to work at it, right? And it's like yeah. um, was it Bill Gates's mom? There, there's that documentary on on Bill Gates where she talks about her role about making Bill Gates human. Right. Yeah. There's a highly technical guy. And she understood what it would take to make him successful. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, that's a very valid kind of uh, level of insight into you know how how we can all develop, um, especially those of us in in finance who uh, who tend to find it a bit more challenging. Maybe we're we're all a little bit more on the the wrong end of the spectrum, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I think we're on the right end. It's just like understanding what you're good at, you know, having a, a, a high degree of self-awareness, which is, is in itself something sometimes. Thanks, Daryl. So we've covered off your passion for authenticity and, and the importance of being human. I think we, we talked offline about a really interesting anecdote and experience that you had in your earlier career, which you headlined as uh, no job is a bad job. Can you share your insights from this experience and how it's contributed to your mindset and your future career decisions and how that also comes back to the being human side of things? Oh, yeah, this is a funny story. So much stuff I learned from this. And I have to say, when I was early in my, this is a story from early in my career, I was quite impatient and uh, very, well, Impatient is definitely probably the biggest part of this story, but the story goes like this. I joined a company on the basis that there was going to be a new business unit. So I actually was invited to join a bunch of people who were leaving one company and moving to another company to kick off this new business unit. It was very entrepreneurial, but again, but within this very large organization. And uh, everyone was so excited and pumped. And I remember showing up, it was just this is going to be a big thing. And then like within a few months, it was over. It was done. <laughs> the big company said, no, nah, we're not doing that. And there was a whole bunch of us sitting there who had just joined that company for the very reason of being part of this adventure. What are we going to do next? And I remember my boss who had uh, brought me over, she was a corporate controller, brought me into her office and sat me down and said, hey, you know, sorry that didn't work out, but I really like you. And uh, how about, how would you feel about a job in AR, <laughs> which is like the antithesis of, you know, building a new business, like accounts receivable, what? And uh, 
I said, okay. And I, I sat in that chair for a few months and I was miserable and I was so disappointed. That's not what I wanted to do. And either fortunately or unfortunately, my previous employer kind of had, had kept another seat warm for me and they were like calling me, Hey, you want to come back? Hey, you want to come back? And <laughs> I went back and I left that job, right? I didn't see the opportunity in it. And the, the funny part of the story is years later, I'm in another role and uh, got this great boss who was a CFO. And I remember just speaking casually to her at one point in time. And I found out, oh, you know that job I left in AR? She took that job and she made it what it could. I mean, she solved the problem. She was excited about it. She she grabbed it. And uh, there she was. Um, now she was my boss. <laughs> and that's happened to me a couple times, actually, where I've encountered people along my career and uh, great people, awesome people. And, uh, you know, they were able to do amazing things. And uh, I think, you know, it's about being patient. It's about taking advantage and doing the best you possibly can in a role and really tackling the challenge and uh, not being impatient maybe as much. That's one of the greatest lessons I've learned is to be patient and take stock of what's around you and, and making the most of what you have. And sometimes that can be great things. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like that's a, a kind of great example of youthful exuberance, kind of if you'd had someone sort of whispering over your shoulder, take a breath, there's an opportunity here. Don't be so impatient. You're young. Don't worry about it. You do the right things and you do them consistently. Good things will happen kind of thing. But of course, not all of us get that voice over our shoulders at the right points in time in our career. And sometimes we just have to learn the lessons, but you know, it's, it's really, I think a great example of, of, of kind of, yeah, that patience thing and that no job is a bad job. I mean, my own experience as a consultant for me, I think the best job I ever had that prepared me for my life in professional services is actually working as a waiter, working as a waiter through after school, through my university that for me was the best training ground for being a good consultant. Wow, that's a great example. And I, I can actually, I have, a, I have some similar examples to that. Some of my best experiences on my way to becoming a CFO were sales jobs. When I ran my own business for six years, I was the chief salesperson. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that helps with the I, storytelling. Yeah. Oh, well, I was a kid back then, but knocking on doors and trying to sell my wares like one door at a time. That was pretty formative. Or there was another example where I was in a couple uh, finance roles with very entrepreneurial leaders. And, uh, you know, coming out of a public accounting firm where you're like, everything's got to be perfect and there's no kind of like gray edges. And suddenly you're, you're thrust into these situations where you've got entrepreneurial leaders and everything's gray. And they're trying to get you to think in shades of gray. Wow, that was important very important in learning about how to see things, what's important and how to turn a story, not say anything that's not true. Everything's true, but it's where you shine the light, right? On, and, and, and make things most positive and optimistic and create value. So important, those experiences, which weren't, you know, typical finance experiences. Thanks, Daryl. I think that's a good point where we can start to think about wrapping up the conversation this podcast is called The Forward Thinking CFO and in keeping with our objective to gain insights, share knowledge and build consensus on the road ahead, 
I'd like to ask you what you feel is the most important thing for CFOs and finance professionals to be considering and focusing on over the short term, the next six to 12 months, and also in the longer three to five year time horizon. That's an easy, that's a softball question. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Knock it out the park. I don't know how much everybody's businesses were affected by COVID or the pandemic, the current climate of economic uncertainty. You know, there's some that were impacted more than others, some positively, some negatively. But for sure, many businesses, including my own, are are going to pivot again, right? Initially, we were on a certain track and then everyone was worried things aren't going to work out. And then the pandemic kind of, you know, went on for a time being and then we started things to turn around. So now it's about finding, but things aren't going to be the same on the other side necessarily, right? There's the whole, you know, how are you going to return to office? Where are people going to be working? How are people going to be working? What What is our target market going to be like? So it's like a new normal. So we have to find that new normal and look for signs and continue to be flexible. And as finance leaders, you know, it's so important to have a good planning process in place. And this has recently been a great example about how you need to be agile and constantly looking at those plans that manage an operating cycle, going through it continuously. And But the chances that you're going to need to make a change when you evaluate are so high now. And because things are changing so quickly, is how do you bring all the people in? How do you keep focus on that long-term growth objective? How do you make sure you're constantly resetting your, your goals and your objectives so that everyone's motivated and feeling aligned? And keeping even in kind of like the intense, like people are, I think I feel anyway, are busier than ever. How do you take the time to be authentic and to listen to to hear people so that, you know, you get your message out and you can make an effective pivot and keep your team aligned? It's so I think this is going to be a major thing this year. I mean, it is already a major thing is how you get back to that growth, that, that new normal thinking forward, being positive. And emerging, you know, ahead and to win, right? And as a finance person, you can we can add so much. And I think to be able to do that, having the proper technology in place, oh my God, there's so many things that you could be doing and uh, thinking about now to uh, make a big impact next year. We're going to have a big impact as finance professionals next year. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's it's a consistent theme that I've heard that whole agility, speed of the feedback loop. And how you listen to that, you know, it's not just about doing the process. It's more about the fact that we actually have to engage and listen to what we're being told and and what the customers, the market, the results, the numbers, the leading indicators, you know, is it more about focusing on those or keeping score is great, but the things that are telling us how the future might turn out probably are becoming more and more important. And, you know, I can't overemphasize, and this is, something is is if you're feeling that that's hard to do uh, rapidly turning around because a finance professional if it's hard to get the engagement it's hard you know your system is is gets in the way your process can't be turned around quickly you're feeling barriers or obstacles in the way of being agile i think it's really time to look at your your systems that you have in place cuz technology is, is is advanced so far and so rapidly recently to get like a, a proper planning system in particular is so important. Yeah, no, couldn't agree more. So with that, thank you very much, Daryl. It's been a pleasure having you. It's been a great, uh, great conversation. And I do believe that our guests will, will kind of benefit greatly from it. So thanks again for your time. 
and uh, best of luck with next year and achieving your, your growth goals. Denver, thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here. Brilliant. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That concludes the sixth episode of our Forward Thinking CFO podcast series. I do hope you enjoyed my conversation with Daryl Cox. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode, so please do get in touch at info at numeritas.co.uk. If you'd like to find out more about Daryl, check out his LinkedIn profile in the show notes for this episode on the Numeritas website. The Forward Thinking CFO podcast is brought to you by the team at Numeritas, your financial modelling partner. We are trusted modelling advisors to global leaders, ranging from FTSE 100 corporations to major infrastructure providers to fund managers with billions under management. But we are more than just modellers. Our team are true experts who understand your business and create solutions to help you overcome your challenges and give you the confidence you need to make your critical business decisions. To find out more about how we can help you solve your toughest business challenges, please visit our website at numeritas.co.uk. Thank you.